just past 7 o'clock. Here we go. It's Monday night time for Iron Sports. 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So much to discuss as we are starting to wrap up the college football season. NFL is getting really spicy. Basically, every team but the Jets and the Texans and Lions are into it. We got plenty to talk about tonight. Ira, you put a lot of miles, uh, put a lot of miles on this weekend. Tell us about where you've been. Well, you said I couldn't. I couldn't do it. You challenged me. <laughs> I didn't say you couldn't. I said it'd be tough. Well, I mean, in the space of forty-eight hours, I was in. I flew. I flew Saturday morning to Atlanta. Went to the SEC championship game, and then I'm probably the only person in the world that went to the two best games. So that was clearly <laughs> the best game to go to on Saturday. Great, game. great, absolutely game. The atmosphere is great. And then Sunday morning, I made it to the Atlanta airport. From downtown Atlanta for 30 minutes, which I think that was a miracle. I never saw someone in the airport. It was I usually go to the Atlanta airport. You give yourself an extra like 100 hours because mm-hmm. it's so many people there. But there was nobody there. I was shocked. And then I flew out to Pittsburgh and then went to the Steeler-Raven game. And What a game that was, too. And I felt like that was January AFC Championship type of uh, the crowd. I wrote a – it's on my Instagram site the uh, about the Steelers at SoFi Stadium, how the Steeler fans travel. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Steeler fans read the article because I said it's louder outside Heinz Field because they were loud. This was as loud as I might have ever heard it at Heinz Field. I mean, the fans were the terrible towels waving everything. I still have bruises on my eyes getting <laughs> hit by the terrible towel maybe like 100 times. I should, next time I'm wearing goggles like they do at the, at the post-celebration championships. But uh, and then uh, fly back this morning and been here in West Palm today, and we, and we taped our interview with John Bacon earlier. So um, speaking of the Instagram, you need to follow Ira at Iron Sports across all social media. Great stuff. You can see him getting whipped in the face, like he said, with thousands of terrible towels all around. You're right when you say that, though. And we'll talk more about this, of course, obviously. But watching that game on TV, it felt like a playoff game. Maybe it's just because we see the way the AFC North plays each other. But man, that was intense. To, to be there, that must have been incredible. It was intense from the players, intense from the fans, and uh, you could see the emotions. I mean, I listened to maybe 20 players, it seems like, after the game on both, and everyone talked about the fan noise. Everyone talked about, I mean, this was constant noise during the play, uh, very loud, and you didn't really need, you couldn't even hear the music pumped in sounds. It was just the fans and waving the towels. Like, everyone, I might have been the only person not waving a towel. I'm taking the <laughs> pictures. I'm trying to do, I literally had to hand my, I didn't literally, I did put my hand up to block the towel from hitting because everyone is waving it because <laughs> otherwise it would knock the my cell phone out of my hand or my camera. And you can see Ira's not lying at Ira on Sports, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, talk about John Bacon. We've had John Bacon on the show before. We caught up with him earlier today, and there's a really good reason. He's very relevant, his knowledge right now. He's the expert on Michigan. He's been known Harbaugh, I think, their, almost their entire life. He wrote four books on Michigan football, some of the top books in terms of that. And he's a, and he's a teacher. He's a professor at Michigan himself. So he's if there's ever an expert on Michigan football, this <laughs> is the expert. And this is a team that uh, and Michigan was able to beat Iowa for the Big Ten Championship, advanced to the college football playoff, and the, uh, got the proverbial monkey off their back in terms of Ohio State, and now the big wins for Harbaugh. Uh, this was a major, major weekend and major, like this, in a space of seven days, Harbaugh went from being fired to now yeah. getting a long-term <laughs> extension. <laughs> Funny how that works. Uh, crazy. Uh, we'll talk to John Bacon right around 720. So, Ira, let's talk about the game. You were there at the SEC Championship. Any crazy stories beforehand sometimes you have some issues getting tickets getting there was there anything like that before we talk about the actual game well i have a hotel room i flew there and, and i had it on uh, hotels tonight and they didn't have my room uh, right, when i course. showed up and i'm still trying to get my ticket because i was waiting to sort of the last minute to get a ticket and and uh so i had a broker help me it was absolutely awesome getting me this uh, great ticket and when you sit this is what i like about the stadium and why i like other stadiums when you sit in the club section and i saw that at sofi you get to go right on the field. So you go into the stadium, and the club section is nice. And if you want to sit inside and drink and eat and whatever, and I like, that's nice too. But I love the fact you can walk literally on the field. I was five feet from the Alabama players on the on that side, and it was just great to watch them do the warm-ups. I mean, I was there two, two and a half hours before the game, and that's when, in these big games, the players come out early. Oh, yeah. They're walking around. You see all the celebrities that are there. It was just so cool to be there, see that atmosphere, and that's what I liked about it. Plus, there's a special entrance. It was neat. When you walk into the game and you have the club section, you're walking in under the stadium, so you're going past where, like, this, the locker rooms are, the officials' rooms. Like, you feel like, you know, it was pretty cool to be in that section, but it's a great stadium. I love the roof 
it has the you've been there too you yes. said it has that it has that roof that opens up in like eight different sections you're like in a spaceship <laughs> and i was there for the super bowl and i sat up higher so i didn't really experience this i thought the stadium felt more like a college football stadium it, it was a little dumpy from that perspective mm -hmm. but when you when you're lower in the club sections wow it looked nice i think sofi might be a better stadium overall but for the club sections and from just the when you sat and looking around it was great and the view and the lighting was still was was perfect for the game let's talk about the game itself ira and this was something i was i wanted to bet against alabama here i, I just wasn't very confident in them being able to score on this georgia defense that had been so good but it came apparent pretty early you know in that game that all right this is not going to be the the typical georgia that we've seen all season alabama's got a shot here well, I don't think it was until the second quarter yeah, because second the, quarter. Fir the, fir the first quarter, Georgia's first play was a screen pass for 14 yards, and then Alabama gets a personal foul penalty. You're like, that's not the way to start the game. <laughs> and then uh, and then they had to punt the ball. But Georgia, Bama, typical, just three plays and out. They couldn't do anything on offense. And Georgia then had an 11-play drive, 6.52 on the clock. And this is, I think, a key play of the game. On third and three on the Bama 11, they tried to pass and not run the ball. Like, they were running down Alabama. And Alabama's defense has been iffy all year yeah. on some games. And it's that pass. And Bennett was sacked for 10 yards back in that forced a field goal. And you're like, ah, oh, well, it was just a mistake. Big, but, but that play, I think if they scored a touchdown there, then Alabama's more defensive. But just getting that field goal was a, like a win. Because Bama got the ball next time and just punted the ball back. And then Georgia started the drive on their own two. They started on two. Then it got down to the one. Uh, they had a false start after. So it was like, you're like, they're all backed in. But they went on a 16-yard pass, 8-yard pass, 4-yard run, 23-yard pass, 37-yard pass to Pickens. The quarter ended. They came back after the quarter came, moved down to the other side of the field, and the first play is a 5-yard touchdown pass. So now Alabama's had the ball. What They might have had two possessions, uh, six, six plays. They are now down 10 nothing. And this looks like, in my mind, I said, uh, uh, Georgia just give them the title because if <laughs> Alabama can't move on Georgia, if Alabama can't score on Georgia, if Alabama can't do anything on Georgia, how's anyone else going to do anything on Georgia? And Georgia looked at, uh, unbeatable, and that was like you know that was in terms of at that point in the second quarter, the game was over. And then the play of the season, I think, was third and two, Bama's thirty-three. Bryce Young throws to Jamison Williams in the slot, and. You notice at the beginning of the game, they were giving Bryce Young a little bit more time. The offensive line has been criticized for Alabama. He was sacked seven times against Auburn. And they gave him just a little time, but he threw a slot pass, right, five-yard, ten-yard pass to Williams. And he broke through. He is so good. He should be a top-five pick in the draft. And he just outran the entire Georgia defense. And that was like, oh. So here's a Georgia defense that had given up the whole year out of, I think, 75 drives in the first half, two touchdowns. They give up a touchdown right then and there. That and I think that set the tone. And maybe they when they go, they, you know, Mitch ten seven, they're still leading. But it just suddenly Georgia gave up a play. It, it seemed like it opened up the floodgates uh, from that moment on. By the way, Ira on sports, True Oldies channel, and Mike Balsamo, John Bacon joins us at seven twenty. Yeah, Ira, from there, that's when you're like, okay, well here we go. And then Alabama started to pile on. It was twenty. They scored twenty four points in the quarter. They scored three touchdowns and one and one field goal. Georgia went three and out, and then Bama got gets a holding call on their play. They threw to John Meachie, 40 yards, and then another pass to Williams for 23 yards, and then Meachie for a 13-yard touchdown. Six plays, 80 yards, and three minutes. So this is a defense. Remember, the Georgia defense was the best in the country. They've averaged over six, six, only six points a game. They had only given up the whole year. Uh, what was the – I gave you the points. 19 points at uh, 29 points all year in the first half yeah. in total and, and Alabama scores 24 points and uh, the most in the game had been 17 points in the entire any game and they give 24 in one quarter Georgia at one point Georgia got three straight pass interferences uh, on at, at, at the end of the second quarter they got three straight pass interference on Bama some of them were questionable tied it up to make it 17 17 and uh, then Bama then Bryce Young amazing two-minute drill they knew that they were gonna get the ball back the second half so they yeah. actually went down there scored uh, Bryce Young this is where Bryce Young really won the Heisman because not only did he pass well but then he started scrambling and Georgia had no he's not known as a runner yeah not known for a runner wasn't able to do anything he ran it in for a touchdown and but on one of the plays where he fumbled he got the ball John Michi got hurt Seems like he tore his ACL. So their second best or first, you know, one A, one B wide receiver is out now for the rest of the year on that play. But that didn't hurt them in the second half. But it might hurt them if they play again. But it was just this onslaught: the passes to Michi, the passes to Williams. I mean, they both and Michi ended up with six catches, ninety-seven yards, a touchdown. Williams seven catches, 
184 yards, two touchdowns. And I'm giving you these stats, realizing that Georgia defense shut everyone down all year. But what we did we talk about? The one team that gave Georgia a little, little, little problem was Tennessee because they went over the top. There was a question a little. There was not. There was there's an issue. Is maybe their secondary is not good, and it and Alabama exposed it. Yeah. Um. Let's go to the second half here, and I, you know, obviously Alabama did enough to win here. I really think that. They kind of took Stetson Bennett, Georgia's quarterback, out of the game. He did not look like the same quarterback in the second half that he did in the first. Well, I think he, I felt, yeah, clearly he felt now. See, Georgia had been the front runner the whole time. Yeah, they haven't trailed ever. It's like, it's like, like you know, like a horse, you know, always running in in a race and not ever having to, you know, having just a clear path. And that was the issue is that they suddenly weren't, there was pressure on them or a closer that comes in the game and there's, there's never many many men on base. I mean, it was the pressure that, and so, um, you know, Alabama, Gets the ball, third quarter, again, young to Davis and Williams, 55-yard touchdown. And it, was, it was just to think that Georgia could not make adjustments on defense in the second half. And that's where the Kirby Smart, uh, Nick Saban issue is. Like, you expect Kirby Smart to, like, okay, our defense just got blitzed, but let's let's settle down. Mm-hmm. But when they got that touchdown, then it was almost a statement that Alabama said, we can score whenever we want. You're not big, bad Georgia. We can score whenever you want on you. And that was the big thing. And Georgia went... And then drove down. It was fourth on one on Bama's twenty on Bama's twenty-two yard line. They're down fourteen. They felt the need. Could you imagine that Georgia felt the need? They couldn't go. They they would kick a field goal there. That's it. That's a field goal. Kick a field goal. Whatever. But they're down now fourteen points. Whoever thought they'd be down thirty-one seventeen? Not me. And then Bennett throws scrambles. He throws an interception uh, on the nineteen-yard line. And uh, and then you know they eventually they drove down. Georgia drove down at fourth and nine. And then it, 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 twice they drove down and they weren't able to score. So at the end of the quarter, each team had it twice. Bama had one touchdown. Georgia had none. And G- Bama and Georgia had two good drives. They couldn't score a touchdown. So Bama's defense. When they needed to just stop Georgia's from doing anything, and then in the uh, fourth quarter, the uh, when Georgia bent it through another interception, pick six to Jordan Battle, they made it uh, thirty-eight to seventeen. So they're up twenty-one points. I think if you there was a bet, how many said that Bama's going to be leading Georgia by twenty-one? Never in a million. Never years. Never in a million years. <laughs> and I just thought I think it's funny when people are talking about Heisman Trophy. I mean, Bryce Young, he should be unanimous. I mean, how could you give it to anyone else? Here's a defense that was one of the best defenses we saw in twenty years, and he just passed. It was like when. Uh, I mean, even when Vince Young played against USC and had this great game and say, Vince Young's amazing, but USC's defense wasn't that great. To, 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 to pass for 421 yards and three touchdowns against on a, a historic defense, defense. Against historic defense and one of the best that we've seen, give him the Heisman. Right? The, the, don't even, the other people, Hutchinson, Stroud, uh, and Pickett are going, they have a good time in New York. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, there's no way the pressure's not going to win this. Uh, I run sports through all these channel, Mike Balsamo. Ira, you did pick up a really cool hat there. And you can see that uh, on social media at Iron Sports. And I think you have an extra one, and you're going to do a giveaway on your Instagram. Yeah, if someone uh, messaged me on Instagram, we'll uh, do a random drawing or something. We'll figure out. The person who runs my social media account is going to figure out how to give out. <laughs> but these are cool hats. I mean, I'll show it to you. But it's uh, here. I'm going to do a video of it. So we're going to do the video of the hat here. But uh, um, but it's a it they the the, the merchandise at those games mm-hmm. is not that great. But this is a really nice hat, and I, the same type of hat they gave to I think to almost every other games. But it has the Bama a logo on it. Everyone loves this hat. I mean, it was like people were like it's fighting sharp. each other when the game is over. These are the hats the players come and they wear. And everyone was after <laughs> these hats. I mean, they were like fighting over it. But it was great, even to be there when they won the trophy to see the excitement for the Alabama fans and the enthusiasm. That was so cool to be to, to, to sense that. I was there two years ago when Alabama beat Michigan at the Citrus Bowl, and they took that seriously too. I mean, that was something important. That was the, that was the building block to win the national championship. So now I've been to the Citrus Bowl. I've been the national championship game last year when they beat uh, when they beat Ohio State, and now this came. But they still have two more victories, but this was big. It was my first SEC championship game. Oh, I want to add this other thing. The fans were amazing. Georgia fans packed the stadium. Alabama fans packed the stadium. All wear red. The mutual respect, like – the Alabama fans, like unlike Ohio State and Michigan, where it's like there's this hatred, they uh, they respect each other. Alabama respects Georgia. Georgia respects Alabama. Like these are good fans. They like we're the SEC. I just like the fact it was it was. I did not see any fighting, not arguing. Nothing. That's great. It was. It, I love. I thought it was much. You know, considering my experience with Ohio State and Penn State and stuff like that, <laughs> there was the fans where everyone was like, "Isn't this game great?" I wasn't. You know, even the Georgia fans were saying. You guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. I Alabama mean, was like, boy, you you know, you, you you brought the best out of us. Like people were really good about. It. I thought that was nice to see in a thing like that. You didn't see the what I saw like with Ohio State. I think they Bama only hates Auburn. <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's, maybe they were a little bit nicer towards uh, Georgia. Let's uh, let's move on to that Michigan game. And you know, you had said it on this show that 
Michigan needed to make sure not to slip up and not to come into this game versus Iowa and just be too confident coming off one of their biggest wins, maybe the biggest win in Jim Harbaugh's career there. Um, and they didn't. They looked great. And you had said that you think Aiden Hutchinson, number one overall pick. And ever since you said that, watching the kid, it's he's phenomenal. And this is just an exciting team right now. Well, I think when you look at Aiden Hutchinson, you compare him to T.J. Watt to some extent in terms of unblockable, and he's strong, and he's quick. And I think that's what they're yeah. looking for the NFL. It's like a Bosa. But, but just amazing in terms of coming in and dominating. And Iowa, look, Iowa was, <laughs> I thought. Look, it's a good story. <laughs> they're a nice story. and they. But, again, they have offensive problems. They could not overcome their offensive problems. Michigan's defense played great. And the key thing was just motivation. Jim Harbaugh was able to make that team to keep the team's motivation. After a huge win, there was no letdown. Let's talk about Cincinnati and Houston. And this is another one. You thought this could be a little bit of a trap game. Um, Cincinnati, though, they did everything. There was a 10 point, 10, point, 10 and a half they needed to cover, and they they blew that out of the water. Well, by they won 38-20. Caught a little of that game on TV. Remember, I'm getting ready for the game, so you, you know how much I love to watch every game. This was a little hard to watch because I'm walking the stadium, I'm on the field doing that. But the point is that Houston wasn't able to put the pressure that I felt like I was expecting this could be a shootout, and Houston wasn't able to get in that shootout with it. But the fact that they won by 18, you ask a good question. Oklahoma, say Oklahoma State won the game. I don't. I still think Cincinnati, by having a dominant win, that put them in because they end up being the fourth pick for the playoff. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Since that bumped Notre Dame up too. Yeah, they beat the, the beat the five, you know, seed overall. Let's talk about Baylor and Oklahoma State because I think you had said, "Watch out, this could be a trap game," and you were right on this one. Well, the Big Twelve uh, championship, um, Oklahoma, but it was like Baylor went out. I watched the whole first half. Baylor's up twenty-one to three. And I thought they were going to coast. Now, Oklahoma State did come back. And at the last, they had a play to win the game at the end. And he just got tackled uh, on the one-yard line. And they would have taken the lead. But even then, that's what I'm saying is that even if Oklahoma State would have won that game on the last play, that to me, that wasn't a dominant win over Baylor. They lost. So it makes it very easy. I mean, this is we talk about who's going to be in the playoffs, who's not going to be in the playoffs. After the game was over, it was clear that Cincinnati was going to be in. They beat Notre Dame at home. That was going to be an issue. I think the question is where the seedings were going to be. But, um, but the fact is that the Baylor, like, I mean, I think the question, like the Michigan fans are saying, I think we should be seeded number one. Clearly not. No, let's not. I, I mean, it's <laughs> because the, Alabama beat Georgia, and that's what. And then I think the question is who, between two and three, it doesn't matter the, 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 who wears home uniforms, who wears away uniforms. And the question is, should Cincinnati have been favored ahead of Georgia, or they should have been favored uh, uh, over ahead of Michigan? No. And I think Cincinnati is just happy they're in it. So they're happy they're fourth. <laughs> so that, that's the point. They had a tough game no matter who they were playing in, in that in the uh, first round there. We'll wish them luck. ACC championship should have been a great matchup. 15 seed Pitt or 16 seed Wake Forest, but man, Pitt blew him out. Well, Pitt, uh, Kenny Pickin, uh just proved again what a year. We talked about, we've been talking about this time and time again. Uh, average quarterback for three years now is either going to be the first or second pick in the NFL draft. Really improved Pitt's offense. And, and, and the nice story about this is the story of redemption. I mean, I'm in, I'm follow Pitt football. Uh, Pat Narduzzi was as on, on the hot seat, just like Jim Harbaugh was. Fans, even Pitt fans, wanted him gone. Didn't feel like they it, – it's a hard place to win, but I guess they have – again, I was talking with my friend about this. The problem with college football is this. You have good teams like that are now good teams, like Clemson. They're good. They weren't good before, but they're good now, so they think they're a good team. Yeah. Alabama was good. There's both times, but there's teams like – I'd say the Clemson would be the, the modern, like really good team right now that wasn't good in the past. But then you have teams like USC who were good in the past, great in the past, won national championships, but aren't good now. They were 4-8 and eight this year, but they think they're good. So you have a yeah. fan base. I mean, rarely do you have the Rutgers or the Maryland's or the Illinois or the Indianas, like teams that are just – or Kansas. They're just bad all the time. Like they're just trying <laughs> to figure it out. You still have – so now you have a mixture of good teams now, plus you have teams that were great before that think they should be good. Like, they they walk around saying, we're USC. You said that's, yeah, USC. Yeah, we're <laughs> USC. We're better than Clemson. We're as good as Alabama. Like, you're 4-8. and eight. You're not as good as those teams. But we were. But no, that was before. But And Miami, the same thing. Miami walks around like they're a dominant. Like, Miami looks like their thing feels like they're a national power team. If you ask people in Miami, big fans, they're, they're national. They haven't been prominent for years, but they still think, hey, we won national championships. And I think that's the pressure that college football has in terms of what. So from Pitt's perspective, for Narduzzi, because back in the 70s and 80s, they were they won national <laughs> championships. The fact that they finally won the ACC title, they didn't fire him, and he's really proved great. He's just a great win for Pitt. I wonder when Miami's last ACC championship is. It has to be over a decade ago, right? More than that. Yeah, like it's, it's been a long time. It's not even national championship, just winning, uh, winning their conference. Let's go out to the Pac-12. You, you wouldn't... <laughs> Low on Oregon this entire season. You thought they were inflated, and Utah went in and beat them 38 to 10. Well, I think it just shows you the problem that Ohio State had to lose to a team at home. 
that sort of set them up. The overconfidence they had, I think, against Michigan and why they lost against Michigan shows what happened because they lost to a team they should have. That was ridiculous that they lost at home to Oregon earlier in the year. And it didn't wake them up because then they didn't. They, they played some games well, but they were inconsistent. But, uh, but Utah... Two weeks ago, they beat Oregon and killed them, and they did the exact same thing, 38-10, to 10, in this game. It wasn't even close. I was watching the game. It wasn't a close game. Uh, uh, so now Utah plays Ohio State in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day, which, again, I am so against how they're doing the playoffs. So they put they put the Rose Bowl is the prime game on New Year's Day with the Sugar Bowl and uh, Baylor Mississippi. So Baylor Mississippi and Utah um, Ohio State are two games. They're good. They're nice, but they should not be the premier games. But you put the two playoff games on New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve when everybody's That's going out it. to parties. Everyone's it's four o'clock and seven o'clock. Why do you put the two premier games on New Year's Eve? I mean, they would never put the Super Bowl on New Year's no. Eve. Like it's ridiculous. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world to do this. But because that shows the power of the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. And I hope whatever they do with the bowl system. They fix that because no one realizes that, you know, at 7 o'clock at night, you're going to get the uh, Michigan game. Uh, uh, you're going to get Michigan-Georgia, which is a phenomenal football game, and you're gonna, people are going to be going out. Now, you know, me, I'm going to be watching the game. I'm not <laughs> going out on New Year's Eve. But the point is that people want to go out, and you're with us. You're going to tell your girlfriend. It's a no. holiday about yeah, going out. Right, and you can't tell. <laughs> and it, you just it's ridiculous that they do it this way, and I, I'm totally against well, that. The purpose, these games should be, you know, it's why – um, NBA does great on Christmas and why NFL does great on Thanksgiving. Everyone's home. It's what you do. You're sitting home New Year's Day. What are you doing? You're home. You're off work. A lot of people work New Year's Eve. Might not even be around for the 4 o'clock game. It, right. it, it was just terrible. I guess it's like you said. I, I didn't realize they had that much power and they can control when their games so, are So, so you're going to wake up. People are going to forget. Wait, the playoffs were on Friday. They're going to yeah. think the playoffs were Friday. We're, we're Saturday. They're wake up. They, who's, what's Utah? What, <laughs> what's Utah and Ohio State? I mean, you're ready at 4 o'clock on New Year's Day. You're going to sit there and watch Utah and Ohio State. And then, I, you know, they're playing the Fiesta Bowl at uh, 11 o'clock Arizona time. So, I mean, the, the bowl games, the whole bowl thing is crazy to put the two major ones on New Year's Eve. They think off, they thought it was a great idea, but it was, it's not a great idea. They did it because the power of the Rose, the power, Sugar wanted New Year's Day night and Rose wanted New Year's Day afternoon. Stupid. Let's uh, talk about it. I don't remember as, as crazy a coaching carousel as we've had here in the last week. Um, Miami is getting back. Um, um, what's his name? Mario Cristobal. He's from Miami, played at Miami, but this was really weird, I remember, because they were saying, as soon as the rumors started, it was saying, Oregon's going to throw the book at him, like a blank check. And then he signs with Miami, which is just crazy. I didn't see this one coming. Well, I mean, the question is, what shoe company is in Miami? I mean, Oregon has Nike. They can Everything. literally write anything they want. If they wanted to, they supposedly offered him, what, $9 million a year. That's what they said. I have no idea what was offered by Miami to, to get him. And I was shocked. You've been on, I'm going to give you credit, Mike. You, you've, been, you've been credited because, <laughs> because you've been able to get this. But I, you were on, you were telling me you thought Diaz was going to get fired. Yeah. And I just said, I don't think he's going to fire because I don't think they're going to be able to hire anyone as big name as Cristobal. But again, Cristobal's lost the two big games. He lost to, to, he got blown out by Utah. So that's who you're getting. I mean, he did a nice job at, at Oregon, you know, at the time Miami Connections. But it's not like he won national championships at Oregon. Do you think which is the better program? It's got to be Oregon, right? I mean, not just like better, more prestigious program. Look at the facilities at Oregon compared to Miami. Yeah, state I, of the art. I, I, I said, someone, people have said that the Oregon club teams, the club teams, <laughs> like the rugby team or whatever. I don't know if there's a rugby team, but someone said the club teams at Oregon have better facilities than the top notch in Miami. I mean, they have the Nike money behind them. Everything is Nike. Everything of that. I just don't understand how. Uh, I, I'm amazed that Miami found the money, and I'm shocked that Crystal Ball would leave. I mean, they have private jets. Oregon supposedly has private jets for all their systems, like Alabama does to fly out. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Miami's going to match this. but I, I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And, of course, we root for Miami football to be good. So let's hope that Crystal Ball is the right hire. They can get some stuff moving. It, it, tell us about what's, what happened with, <laughs> with um, LSU now. Well, Brian Kelly from, uh, uh, from, Notre, from Notre Dame takes a job, and it, I was following all the press conferences. Surprised me, too. It might it surprised me, but more I think about it, it didn't, because the AD of Notre Dame said, I expected that he was going to leave. I think there's been pressure on Kelly. Kelly ha is 60 years old, so he's 22 years older than Lincoln Riley. He was at Grand Valley State. He was at Cincinnati. He's at Notre Dame. He's worked his way up. And I feel like he, this is like, I have one more go around and he doesn't care. He's kind of this huge contract. And if he gets fired, he keeps his money. But it's like his career is over. And like, he said, why we would take the challenge? And he's like, he thinks he's a great coach. He, he's mad about some of the players. He could not get in Notre Dame because of academics. There's a lot of issues yeah. with Notre Dame academics. And so the more I think about it, 
for him, it's worth it. He got a ton of money. He it, It's a challenge for him. And I think he was looking. I think he was a little uh, – Notre Dame did not – he did not give Notre Dame a chance to keep him. So I think it was either going to be – and he made a comment. It was either going to be USC. He and Riley share the same agent. So he knew really? about USC too. So if Riley would have taken USC, maybe he takes USC instead. But Riley took USC. He took Notre Dame. Interesting to see how uh, that played out. You see he picked up a fake Southern accent when yes. he started speaking there. That yeah, shows a lot about him. Uh, and then what, what did Notre Dame do? Well, they hired internally Marcus Freeman, who is one of the best young uh, They're super high on him. They're super high. He was at Cincinnati's defensive quarter. He's only been a coach for like seven, eight years. But this starts a trend of of coaches. Not starts. It continues a trend of the Lincoln Riley, who was at is 33 years old when he was hired to Oklahoma. Ryan Day at hey, Ohio State. So let's see what oh. the rank. And then, and then, and, and then Marcus Freeman now from Notre Dame in terms of being uh, being a, a, a top assistant, the top defensive coordinator, leading this great defense. And I think what Notre Dame felt was, our team is playing great. The players loved him. They all supposedly went into the office and said, "We want Marcus Freeman." And if the team is just average, and players demanded that, but I think they think they can build on this team. And I give Notre Dame credit. They listened to their players. They listened to what they wanted. They knew they saw a year with Freeman. They didn't need, they didn't have two or three, but they saw what he did in a year. They liked what he did. And they're saying he's going to be a great recruiter. I think it was a smart move. You don't need to start over. To them, it was more of a continuation than a start over. Just like Notre, just like Oklahoma did with Riley when Stoops left. When and, you see oh, everyone from Oklahoma is leaving to and decommitting. You keep the, the coordinator they like, and a lot of them will stay. Right, and Riley st- when Stoops left, Riley stepped in, and when Urban Meyer left, then Ryan Day stepped in without coaching experience. So I think they believe that Freeman is the, one of the top recruiters, um, and he was going to get hired in a year or two anyway, so why not have mm-hmm. him at Notre Dame? He's already there, knows his team. I, I'm not surprised by the move, and I think it was great, and I think it was the players – and if the team wasn't so good, they had one loss all year. They were 11-1. and one. If they weren't as good, then it would be an issue. But the fact is, a lot of great players coming back. The defense is going to be great. Recruits in the system. They don't. What, what recruits have you seen leave Notre Dame? No None. Money. None. So because they, they, Freeman was the top recruiter. So that's the reason. Let's go to John Bacon. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports on 95.9, 106.9. I am honored to have the expert on Michigan football, John Bacon, uh, and uh, one of the most esteemed authors, uh, on the show today. So, John, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, my pleasure, of course. We had you a couple years ago. You talked about your book, Overtime, which was an amazing book about everything about Michigan. So I thought you'd be the perfect guest to come back now that all the things that you talked about in the book and all the pressures, it's like that one win over Ohio State and then the win over um, Iowa, uh, what happened in terms of bringing Michigan back, well, today say, to their prominence. That's about right. Uh, we talked two years ago. I probably said it then, and I certainly said it on ESPN before the game on the previous Saturday against Ohio State. For Jim Harbaugh to have true ownership of the position, to be accepted by everybody, of course, and, and look toward the, towards the future, one very simple answer, you have to beat the Buckeyes. There is no substitute. And then they finally did it, and did it in emphatic fashion, as you noticed. How much we're seeing it from the outside for the national perspective, how much pressure what did Jim Harbaugh come this year? Like, I mean, it to me, looking at from the outside, I can't think of a coach that had more pressure than Harbaugh. But maybe from Michigan, he felt like he had a little couple more a leeway. But it just seemed from the outside, I, I just can't think of a coach that was under more pressure. I think you're right, actually. And look, usually Michigan, and I've said this before, and uh, occasionally to Paul Feinbaum's disappointment, Paul's a good friend, he does a great job, of course. But uh, everyone thinks, you know, the last year, the year before, he's in the hot seat, he's in the hot seat. It's like, well, at Michigan, they don't look at polls. They don't look at, you know, radio shows and blogs and all that. They, one guy gets a vote. It's the athletic director, and the vote has always been one nothing in Harbaugh's favor. However, as you noticed, I read in the offseason in January of last year, uh, he had one year left in his contract. Harbaugh did. So the AD, um, Ward Manuel, changed it dramatically. Instead of setting up the same deal, he basically cut the salary in half with a lot of bonuses. He can get his money back, and he probably just did, and then some. <laughs> Um, but and, and cut way back on the buyout and so on. It basically became an at-will, year-by-year contract, which is very rare at that level. Um, so with that in mind, um, it was do or die. And to Jim's credit, and people don't talk about this, um, he swapped out six of his ten assistant coaches who had done a good job to that point. Uh, but you swap that out, man, that is a big boy bet right there, all the chips, and you live or die on it, and it clearly worked extremely well. 
and talk about some of those assistants. I mean, one was the defensive coordinator he brought in from the Ravens. And in terms of those decisions, I mean, so many times people make, I mean, Ed Oregonian at LSU or Oregon had uh, trained to change assistants. A lot of his assistants left. And, and the problem was he brought the wrong ones in. But it seems like that uh, Coach Harbaugh hit a home run with his assistants bringing them in this year. Yeah, well, like I said, it's a hit-or-miss proposition, and frankly, how much do you know about any assistant coach before you hire them? I mean, they might have coached somewhere else. They might have coached a high school team. In Ron Bellamy's case, he won a couple state titles at West Bloomfield, but he's a high school coach. He played at Michigan, and he's a hell of a coach. But how do you know how he's going to do at the college level? And McDonald, as you pointed out, the defensive coordinator, had coached for Jim's brother John with the Baltimore Ravens. Okay, that's great. But can you adapt to 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds? These are all fair questions, and they've been answered uh, enthusiastically yes, I suppose, in all cases. And one of the ones that I think is most interesting is Michael Hart. Michael Hart set the record for rushing at Michigan back in uh, 07, I believe it was, and then went on to a very good career at, in coaching, uh, finally at Indiana last year. But he and Jim Harbaugh had a very public dispute 15 years ago or so about academics and who's a Michigan man and who isn't. <laughs> and people were eating that, eat, eating that up 14 years ago, and now here they are in the same staff. So give them both credit for bearing the hatchet and putting Michigan ahead of their whatever differences they had. Did he, besides the coaching staff, did, was there any other changes he made to the program in terms of the style, the offense, the players? Is there anything else that he did in terms of looking at this as his last chance to his last stand? Well, yeah, I think one of the coolest things he did was created a what they call the Leadership Council of seniors and others, I believe, um, to determine which direction the team is going to go. And, of course, Aiden Hutchinson, the captain and now a Heisman Trophy candidate, the defensive end, um, he, of course, was leading that charge. And shameless plug, Ira, my latest book is Let Them Lead, and it's all about uh, doing just that. If it's you versus the players, you're going to lose. And down where you are, of course, John Cooper, who had coached high school hockey, believe it or not, in Michigan when I was coaching years ago, um, he had a great, he's got a great phrase. Uh, bad teams, nobody leads. Good teams, coaches lead. And great teams, everybody leads. And that's what Harbaugh this year was trying to affect. They had pretty weak leadership in 2019 and 2020, and it didn't work. Uh, this year they've got great leadership, unranked, and now they're in the Final Four. You know, they started this year out and uh, what, six, seven games in a row, seven and zero, um, and everything. See, but they start with the doubters. It's like seven zero, but you really done nothing. It was the, probably the the worthless seven and zero ever because people were like, well, it's not really anything. You're unranked going into the year. Then they lose to Michigan State when they had that lead. And it's like at that point, then people said, well, this is what Harbaugh was. That's when Paul Feynman said, Feinbaum said, you know, he's, it's in, he's incapable of winning a big game. Um, at that point, how did, how did he keep the team together and not let the season just completely unravel? Great question. And again, I think the answer, and you're right, by the way, you lose to Michigan State. Look, two games in the schedule matter to, to the fans and largely to the players, and that's Michigan State and Ohio State. Um, they lost a game. They had a 16-point lead, as you point out. Lost a game to a team that was 2-5 and five last year. Mel Tucker is the Big Ten Coach of the Year and deserves it. Um, one heck of a game. When the wheels come off like that, Harbaugh's pretty good at this. Uh, at 2015, of course, against Michigan State was the famous punt game uh, where the craziest play I've ever seen to end a game. Michigan State makes it, and they win the game. And what you do is you, you resort to your values as fast as you can and get the leaders involved. And luckily, they had an easy relatively easy game the next week against Rutgers, um, or supposed to be easy anyway. Um, and uh, you just you circle the wagons and get back to your values and block out all the noise. And they did a very good job of that. And then even going, but going into the Ohio State game, it's like, again, it was just like no one was giving Michigan any chance. This game was at home, the Michigan fans. I mean, I was at the Penn State-Michigan game. Michigan looked good against Penn State, but people don't even know what this Penn State team looks like. But the fact is... I don't. I really don't believe. I think if Michigan would have won every other game in between the two, like a hundred to nothing, people would still have doubted. There was <laughs> doubt in Michigan going to the Ohio State game, and like that, it was like from the opening drive. Like I thought, I, was, I said this last week when Ohio State they I deferred. I thought that was a mistake. I think Ohio State should. I mean, their defense was terrible. Ohio State should let's take the ball, score, but to giving Michigan a chance to get that ball and then just drive down and run the ball down, I think was a statement by Michigan saying, "Look, your defense stinks, and and we're just going to do this all day long." I think you're dead right about that. I said that quietly, I admit, in the press box before the game started. Uh, but back to your point, I mean, these guys, and knowing enough about the locker room right now and these guys and the coaching staff, uh, every guy in that room believed they're going to beat Ohio State. They had no doubts. And that had not happened the previous two years for sure. 
I think they felt that way in 2018, but they're probably too public about their uh, their views, and they got smacked down pretty badly at Columbus. Uh, this time with a quiet confidence, they came to it with great earnestness, and I thought it was a big mistake for Ohio State to defer to Michigan to give them the ball first. Um, they went right down, scored a touchdown, and now your confidence is up. And furthermore, that crowd, people can call a Michigan crowd quiet all they want. Everyone was not just standing up. They're standing on their benches, and not just the students, but the quote-unquote fat cat alumni and whatnot, uh, waving pom-poms every play throughout the entire game. So that's the last crowd you want to get into it. Um, and that was a tactical error on Day's part, in my opinion. And then I just think, it, it, would you say that Ohio State was overconfident? I mean, they had to be listening to the press clippings that there was, this was going to be a close game. And I even saw it against the Penn State, you know, when they committed all the penalties that was at that game in Ohio State. It seems like they didn't even respect Penn State. This is a team that if, they're, if they get a lead, they're going to win. You know, how many games did they had where they were up like 40 to nothing? It seemed like it seven or eight of those games during the season. But when they got in a tough game, it just seemed they had trouble. And I think they were just way overconfident against Michigan. And you saw that in some of that pregame pushing and shoving where they were sort of disrespecting Michigan. I think you're exactly right about that one, Ira. And a friend of mine who covers them closely down there for 11 Warriors, uh, the top uh, Ohio State uh, fan site website, I uh, calls them entitled. That, I mean, look, and in fairness, they had not lost a Big Ten game in three years. <laughs> How can you convince a 19-year-old kid who's never lost a Big Ten game that somehow this team, seven-point underdogs, who lost to Michigan State, a team he just blew out 49 nothing in the first half the previous week, how can you possibly convince them that they can lose? And they didn't believe it, and that was part of the setup. Uh, Bo Schimbeckler used to say famously, the upset is in the mind of the favorite. In other words, they can't beat you without your permission. And Ohio State brought their game down enough and Michigan brought their game up enough to result in an old-fashioned butt kicking in that game. And it wasn't fluky, and it wasn't the calls, and it wasn't turnovers. Michigan did not generate a turnover the entire game. They flat-out pushed Ohio State around the entire night. One fun fact for your Ira, uh, Michigan did not suffer a tackle for loss the entire game. And in the second half, did not require a third down on four straight long touchdown drives. So that is when you're getting your butt kicked. And then Haskins, who scored five touchdowns in that game, he just seemed to be someone who was like, I, you're not tackling me. Like, you're going to need four or five. And his burst, I mean, I, I, it was, he was just rocket fuel almost in terms of going and attacking that line. And I think that was another difference where I think Ohio State hadn't faced a running back that really just took it to them. So they were having trouble on the line, but then you have a running back that just was running with reckless abandon. It's a hell of a combination. Uh, I think they, they figured out that uh, most of his yards were after contact. He'd get the first five yards free from that offensive line. Uh, and then, of course, make his own moves. He's not that big a guy, but I saw him, as you did, uh, carry two or three guys five yards a bunch of times during that game. That was a determined guy, uh, to say the least. But the offensive line was decent this year, but I didn't think they were all that great at Michigan. And like I said, they just shoved those guys around, perhaps most impressively, the fourth touchdown of that half when you're up by, I think, seven points at that point. Um, and it's about eight minutes left, and you know you're going to run, they know you're going to run, and everyone knows you're going to run, and they ran anyway, and they still ran their way to a touchdown with no passes. So, again, I did not anticipate – I thought Michigan could win the game. I thought it was about a one-third chance. But I never thought they'd blow them out and just push them around all day long. And then Ohio State, you know, put up yards and everything like that. But to be able to, I mean, they couldn't keep up with them. I mean, the one thing Ohio State you expected is like, okay, if Michigan's going to score, at least we're going to way outscore them. But it's the Michigan defense that got those key stops. And even though they got the yardage, and I think Stroud threw like 350 yards or something, but they got key stops and they have three first-round NFL draft picks at wide receivers. I just, the uh, Hutchinson at defense is just, I mean, amazing. Uh, you know, it's funny how his name was not on anyone's list three, three weeks ago or so for the Heisman, I don't think. Uh, and now it's taken seriously. But, you know, C.J. Stroud, is, he was a Heisman candidate until that game probably. Maybe he still is. Uh, three, as you say, NFL probably first-round draft picks at wide receiver. And they made some great catches in that game. You could see the talent that Ohio State has. But one thing, as you said earlier, Ohio State had really not been punched in the mouth at any point during the season, I guess early on versus Oregon, but not in the Big Ten season. What do they do when they're behind? What do they do when they're you know, behind by 7 or four, you know, 14? Can they handle it? And what does Stroud do when he's on the run? On the run? Uh, Hutchins in that game had 15 hurries. That's like half your passing, <laughs> passing down. That means you're on the run more often than not. And that cannot be a healthy place to be.
So they, they, they beat Ohio State, and then everyone's saying, you know, the, the Harbaugh haters are out saying, well, that was a fluke. They're, gonna, they're not going to be motivated for Iowa. Iowa's going to come in like Iowa's dangerous. And then they win by 30-some points against Iowa, blow them out of the game there. Uh, to be able – what did he do in that week after having that just historic victory they'll talk about for years, but not to have the letdown and be ready to play Iowa and to put that performance on? That is – Probably underrated. Uh, the, the analogy I used all week that got picked up, I think, nationwide is 1980 Olympic team. Uh, back when we were a little younger, maybe you weren't born yet. I'm not sure. I read kid. But the, they beat the Soviets on Friday night, which is great. And everyone thought that was for the gold medal. It wasn't. Uh, they had to play the Finns about 40 hours later on Sunday morning. And if they lose that game to Finland, they might have gotten nothing, not a silver, not a bronze, nothing. And they're down 2-1 to one, going to the third period. They got a penalty to kill. Uh, could have all gone kaput. And Herb Brooks gave him the great line, if you guys lose this game, you'll take it to your graves. And then he said it again. Um, and that was basically Michigan's message. If we lose this game, we'll take it to our graves. And that got spread around the team, I believe. And they just stayed focused. They blocked it all out. Which they're going to have to do again, of course, going forward against Georgia and possibly Alabama. So, uh, so yeah, they got their work cut out for them. But already, the, whatever happens next for Michigan, I'm sure, is gravy at this point. Yeah, I mean, Georgia seems to be really – it's, it's going to be a tough team for them because the teams that Georgia has destroyed, it seems like the way to beat them is to go over the top, and McNamara is not that type of passer. They're not going to throw the ball 50 times a game and to do what Alabama did, which was just tremendous. So it's really a, a tough matchup for Michigan, and certainly they'd much prefer to have played Cincinnati uh, rather than, uh, than Georgia. Cincinnati or Notre Dame or Oklahoma State. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guarantee you they were not thrilled when they saw uh, Alabama manhandle, truly uh, manhandle Georgia. Cause you know Georgia's still in it, and they should be. They're, you know, 12-1 and one, for crying out loud. Um, that's a hell of a season, um, number one, for a good chunk of it. Uh, so, yeah, they, honestly, Georgia matches up pretty similarly to Ohio State. Now, one great advantage Michigan has in this game that they didn't have versus Ohio State is Alabama just showed you a roadmap on how to beat them. So that tape, I'm sure, will be broken down many times in Ann Arbor before the game. They'll be the underdogs. It's about the same as it was against Ohio State, about seven and a half points, I think. Um, but I think this team's pretty hard to face at that point. And if I'm Georgia, uh, you are playing a team playing its very best at the right time. So it should be a good game. Um, where is this? I mean, now you're seeing the, con- the, the coaches' contracts in the Big Ten, and uh, Mel Tucker gets $95 million guaranteed, and James Franklin $75 million guaranteed. And suddenly, and then I really think what Harbaugh did, and it's been underrated, under, not even just talked as much, is that the bonuses that they got, he gave to the staff, all the people who took pay cuts during the pandemic. It just seems to be Harbaugh's not in this for the money. It's, he just is in it because he wants to win for Michigan. I think it's right. As corny as it sounds, and look, I'm sure Jim would perform more, more money to less money. Don't, <laughs> I don't doubt that for a second. He's got an agent for a reason, and actually his agent's a, a lawyer who's a friend of his, but uh, he avoids all that. But, uh, but look, I mean, he, he already, you know, he's already an all-pro quarterback. He'd done his job. He's in the ring of honor at the Indianapolis Colts. This is not a guy who needs to coach, and you don't see you know, Joe Montana or any of these guys coaching. Um, Joe Montana, of course, is a better quarterback than Jim was, and he got the Super Bowls to prove it. But, you know, a, a, a 14 NFL, 14-year NFL veteran, these guys don't, don't generally coach. So it can't be the money in the first place that motivated Jim, I don't think. And I'm sure his first contract at the University of San Diego, which was, I think, around $50,000, you don't do that for the money. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, a high school te- coach in Texas gets more than that for a good team. So, um, And, again, giving away the $3.5 million the same week that Brian Kelly – Leaves Notre Dame for LSU, and uh, everyone else is getting $95 million, $75 million guaranteed. Uh, it's a stark contrast. Now, having said that, I have reason to believe that Michigan will probably be writing Jim a new contract when this is all done to uh, go back to his old one, then some. Uh, but I think it's a great gesture. I've not seen a gesture like it from any other coach in America. So give him credit. And I think Michigan does deserve credit from the administrative side in terms of, and also like Pitt, because Narduzzi was coming under a lot of uh, fire too. That, you know, why are you keeping Narduzzi on? And, and he paid off handsomely winning the ACC title for the University of Pittsburgh, just as Harbaugh did for the Big Ten ch- title. And, you know, when you see down here in Florida, like Dan Mullen, he's fired after four years. Manny Diaz after three years. It just seems right. like teams are willing to just get rid of their coaches quickly. And there has to be something said about being loyal to your coach who's trying to win and someone like... Uh, uh, Coach Harbaugh and Coach Narduzzi. I agree with all that, and great point on Pat Narduzzi. Obviously, that uh, 
you know, the former defensive coordinator, of course, at Michigan State, did a great job for Mark D'Antonio. Um, as, we, as we both know, Ira, having covered this stuff for many years and at close range, uh, patience is not a quality in, in long supply amongst athletic directors, alumni, fans, and so on. But it results in these revolving door programs. Look, football, I think more than almost any other sport, takes so long to get going uh, the way you want um, and if think about it, if they'd pulled the plug on Arduzzi a couple of years ago and they're talking about it, uh, you wouldn't be the ACC champs this year with a very bright future, and now recruits coming in, it looks very good right now for Peyton, and it should. Uh, likewise at Michigan. I mean, they had recruits in for the Washington night game, a blowout, and they had recruits in for the Ohio State game. If a recruit sees that game and doesn't want to come to Michigan, he ain't coming to Michigan anyway. <laughs> so, and if this is not impressed, he's all we got. So, as is Michigan's attitude, I'm sure. Um, so they'll have a very good recruiting class. So will Pitt, and patience is rewarded, uh, but it's, not, it's often not exercised. Well, thanks again for coming on, John. I really appreciate you talking about Michigan. I'm going to let you plug your book. You just mentioned it earlier about we've had you've had we had you on the book Overtime. You have the book called End Zone, and I mean many other books that are fantastic. But your current book that just came out was Let Them Lead. Tell me a little about that book. Sure. The title is Ira Let Them Lead: Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And I'm not making that up. It happens to be Ann Arbor Huron High School, home of the River Rats. Where I went to school, I coached the team, incredibly. Uh, Harbaugh went to Ann Arbor Pioneer. That's where all the good guys go and, you know, where the river at, is all I can tell you. Uh, the team was 0-22-3, worst in America, according to one, one website. I'm the worst player in school history, having played in all 86 games and scored the fewest goals, zero. That's hard to beat. Uh, pretty bad combination, and yet within three years, we're the best team in school history. Number 53 in the country, we'd passed 95% of the nation in three years. And I did not cut one player off that 0-22 and 3 team. So uh, it's a way to how to lead the new generation, uh, current workers. Um, and uh, Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe, God bless him, called it Ted Lasso meets Mighty Ducks. And Malcolm Gladwell picked it for his book club, the Next Big Idea book club. So an NPR Last week, picked it as one of their favorite books of the year. So well, check it out. A fine I, gift for anybody who cares about leadership or just a good story. I'd love to read it, and it seems like a book that's going to be made into a movie. Like, we're going to see this in a, as a Disney movie coming up, too. We got a shot. Um, the last time that Disney did this was D3 Mighty Ducks. That screenwriter and I, Jim Bernstein, are working on a script together. We're almost done. And that's getting some buzz there, too. So, uh, so yeah, got a real shot. And Ira, just shoot me your address, and we'll send you a copy. Obviously. Oh, I can't wait to read it. That'd be great. So the congratulations. That sounds awesome. But, John, thank you so much for coming on, Ira, on Sports. I really appreciate you talking about the University of Michigan, the football team, Harbaugh, everything, and, and your book, Let Them Lead, which is available in bookstores and Amazon and everything right now. So thanks a lot, John, for coming on Ira on Sports. Ira, thank you, buddy. Really a fascinating guy, that John Bacon. We always welcome around here. Hopefully we have more uh, stuff that ties into Michigan, get him involved. We have to fly, though, Ira, because there's still so much to talk about. We haven't even got to the NFL yet. And as you said, you were there in Pittsburgh yesterday for what seemed like it was definitely the best game of the week by far. I mean, you, you for having a travel day, you didn't miss much across the NFL. Not, not a lot of great, um, exciting games, but you were at the best one in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean, this is when I go in, the word out during the week was, Ben Rotzenberger had announced, told people this yeah. was the final season, so you started feeling that, and you're feeling if the Steelers lose this game, maybe they they're out of the playoff picture. They bench Ben. This could potentially be his last game. Like, yeah, you, you had what, to be there. You didn't know where this was going to go, and I he's been playing. He's been the quarterback there. This is his 18th year. He's won two Super Bowls. He's been to three Super Bowls. First ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest quarterbacks. Never had a losing all, record, right? All time, never losing record. Greatest quarterback. I mean. Bradshaw won the four Super Bowls of Pittsburgh, but certainly this is, and I've been seeing him play so many times and so much, and I, and I just love how he battles. I love how he fights. I love how he stands in the pocket and everyone's trying to tackle him and he's holding people off and four people are jumping on him. He throws the passes and he completes the big passes. And if it weren't for Tom Brady, who knows? He could have had maybe the four Super Bowl championships, but I'm been, I love the Steelers. I'm with them. I wanted to be there for that. And I'm not willing to give up. Everyone's like, let's change. You know, let's change. You look at Denver. That's what you want. You change quarterbacks. Yeah. Like I want to get Carolina. I'm, I'm going down with the ship. <laughs> like I, if Ben's going to go down, I want to go down right with him because he's, I've been for my whole, like the last 18 years of rooting for football for the Steelers. It's been Ben Rotzenberger. And when he's ready to retire, that's great. But I, as he had so many great memories he brought me, and I just wanted to, and he's still there, still battling the end, and this was the Baltimore Ravens. This is one of the greatest robberies in all of sports. It, this is, it, 
the AFC North, the way you guys play, is just a little bit different than every other division, and it's just more physical, more demanding. And this is the the, the premier you know matchup. It ended up being a great game, though. <laughs> Let's go back and talk about it because. Lamar Jackson's been a little off lately, and you guys seem to bother him as well. And either way, like I said, this was just a great game that went down to the wire. Well, I want to say this about Lamar Jackson. I, uh, he was very impressive. As much as they didn't score the points, as much as their offense had problems, they really don't have other playmakers. They don't have a wide receivers that get open. I, they have not helped him, and, I, and he does so much. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing is that he is able to move around in the pocket. It is, he should be a boxer what he's done because he just is able. <laughs> I've never seen a quarterback be able just to move from the, He's tall. He's quick. He's fast. And I just don't think he has the wide receivers out there that get open because he's able to buy himself more time than any quarterback in the league. And I cannot believe he doesn't get hurt. The hits that they put on him, watch it. Go with my Iron Sports, and I have these pictures of these hits. He's getting smashed and smashed. He gets right back up. He is the toughest person. He gets hit, and he gets back. All these other quarterbacks, they hurt their fingers. They can't play, or this bothers them. He's he's great, and the Steelers really need to have, It was tough, and to pull out this victory was amazing. And, of course, with, with one play, it could go either way. Yeah, I mean, it, it came down to literally the wire. Let's talk about the game, though. Start at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, really, the, the Ravens drove down, and Jackson, they were ready to score. Jackson throws the interception. But really, the first half, three straight drives, three, three straight three and outs. Uh, then the Ravens went on a 16-play, 99-yard drive. It took 11 minutes. It was the longest drive ever against the Steelers. They, you could only go more than 99. Yeah. <laughs> so that was sort of what the, what the point was. But uh, it was kept alive by T.J. Watts, Portland Sportsman, like conduct. But uh, then the Steelers kicked a field goal at the end of the half. It was 7-3, total domination. I mean, that first half was... It was you're as a Steeler fan. I'm like, I can't believe we're in this game. Like this was this this had a yeah, first half was not good. It felt like twenty four to three. <laughs> like that would have been it. But we're only down seven three. This was after the Bengals game, so I'm like nervous. Like this could be it. But they hung in there, and they it was, so it was only seven three at halftime. And then they come back in the third half, and uh, Steelers had a great pass to Ray Ray McLeod, but it was ruled complete. But then they it was like a fifty yeah. yard pass, and then they it was it I, looked I think, really close. On it TV. was very close, but the, I think it was the right call. And uh, the Steel, then the Ravens went made it ten three. And then three minutes go in the third, one of the worst punts I've ever seen. And uh, But it was really just still, still 10-3 at the end of the third. The fireworks all started in that fourth quarter because it was just 10-3 going into the fourth. And uh, it was like third and one, uh, the Steelers, who hadn't really done anything on offense. It was, this was like the Alabama play. They, they slant the Chase Claypool where they threw it to him on the short pass, and he goes in. And then that was for 40 yards. And Ben to DeAndre Johnson, I know he's on your fantasy team. You love that play. <laughs> a 29-yard pass touchdown. Made it 10-9. And then Boswell, who never misses anything, never misses. misses an extra point in the fourth quarter. I mean, when he missed it, people were so, wait, are you sure? Is that what happened? They <laughs> he completely it, shanked it, too. But they announced it. Well, people didn't see it. And they're like, well, is it true? Like, was that really a play? Was that like what they called the they called the play dead like people didn't even believe it was 10-9 at that point yeah boswell is as reliable as they come not named justin tucker and ira he i mean it just missed it off his foot it was like like you know chunking a, a drive into the woods it was it was really pretty bad and he, then, then game gets like, better from there yeah though. it was like blackjack the rest of the way because the steelers go the ravens go down they get stopped on the 12 and uh, on a Jackson run, huge stop there, make it 13-9. And the Steelers come down, and they got, and they got and with 7-18 left, Boswell hits a field goal, and they make it, they cut the lead to 13-12. to And then they played Renegade. Oh, so <laughs> the fans were allowed before Renegade, and when they played Renegade, it was like the perfect time. They always play right when the defenses come on the field, but that just lit it up. And when they play Renegade, they keep it on the entire time. Like, it's playing, it's mm-hmm. playing, it's playing. And the fans were allowed. The Ravens get the ball. And even Lamar Jackson was they, – they ran three plays and lost three yards on three plays. And then they punted the ball. And I think that was – of anything was a turnaround because Steelers get the ball back, 11 plays, 69-yard drive. This was the drive. I think Ben went 10 for 11 on mm-hmm. the drive. Uh, and on third and two in the Baltimore 26, he threw an interception. And they ruled it themselves like, oh, man, that, that could have been the game. Yeah. Because Patrick Queen made a great play on that. But then they called a pass interference. Yeah. So the intersection. So it's the first down, not it. The Ravens are going nuts. Uh, they gave the Steelers a first down. Then Ben to DeAndre Johnson for the touchdown. And then they go for the two-point conversion to make it 20, which was it key. They needed it. To make it 20 to 13. And they go get the they get the, the two-point conversion uh, and Ben to Fryermose for the touchdown. I have a great play on that picture of that. I had the picture of Ben. He had thrown the ball, and he's standing there, and he's, like, watching Fryermuth catch the ball. Mm-hmm. It's like a classic. I love this picture. One of my favorite pictures I ever took. It's on the Iron Sports Instagram site. 
And then the Ravens go down, and you're thinking, okay, well, the Steelers' defense is going to get up. And the Ravens went down easily. Just like, you know, yeah. under two minutes, went to down, and they scored the touchdown, and uh, then the decision. Harbaugh, what were you thinking there? Well, I mean, for people who were, did, you know, were maybe under a rock the last time, what they decided to do at 20 to 19, when 99.9% .9 of the other coaches in the world would have kicked the extra point, send the game to overtime, especially, it's like, you see this if like when we when Kansas played Texas, remember they went mm -hmm. for two or what? Or like if if you if you're the way underdog and you yeah, have a chance if, to win. If Houston's playing the Chiefs and they have a chance to win the game, go for it. Go for it. Not right. in a division matchup like this against two evenly matched teams. As soon as he went for, I saw him signal two. Even uh, Al Michaels and Collinsworth didn't. It was like crazy that. that Nobody thought this was coming. Well, you know what was weird what happened? And I don't know what happened on television with that. They signaled that um, they said they were going to go for it. And the Steelers were, like, confused, so they called a timeout. I said, that was brilliant from Harbaugh. They made the Steelers burn a timeout because they looked like going for two. Then Justin Tucker, the kicker, comes out on the field. So he's now on the field. Lamar Jackson's on the field. And the the the, the, the kickout, the field, I mean, the field goal team is not there. But, but Justin Tucker's, like, practicing kicks right in the mm -hmm. field. So I'm thinking that's what's going to happen. So then at the last minute when they came back after the timeout, after the Steelers came back, they called timeout, after the timeout, Tucker runs right off the field. They go into play again. I'm thinking, oh, they're just going to – this is just to get draw to draw offside, side, yeah. something like that. When they ran the play, I was like, oh. I was like, they're running the play? Like, <laughs> I was in shock. And I think what happened in that play was it was wide open. I mean, Andrews was went to the Ravens' right, was wide open there, and T.J. Watt, no other player would have made that play. I mean, the fact that he was to shed two blockers, came in there, you saw the whole Steelers were all on the Ravens' left side or in the center. Highsmith wasn't over. They can literally, if Jackson could have avoided Watt, he could have ran in for a touchdown, and then he decides to throw the ball. It was a bad pass, but Andrews still could have caught it and dropped yeah, it was, the ball. it was catchable. And I think all the reasons they said after the game is analytics. So he said analytics said that we should go for it. He had no quarterbacks. That's he was afraid to play for overtime. And um, he felt the momentum was on his side, and they loved the play. And they thought this play was perfect. Now, all those reasons aside, they have been dominating the Steelers all day long. You just marched down the field. You just I, I just don't know why you don't play for overtime on that. So I was shocked by that in, in that play. And I was surprised by it. But I I when I almost I was like, when they ran, when that play ran, I'm like, they're actually doing it. Like you're saying, they're gonna run this play. <laughs> Is he that crazy? And then it almost and the fans went nuts. And go on my I had the play on my on the Instagram up there, and uh, it was it was just the fans went totally nuts and people were in shock when after it did the two-point conversion. So they lose 20 to 19. It's 7.57, Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. As he said, you can uh, catch all this stuff on social media at Iron Sports. Right, we just have like a minute or two left here for the NFL. What uh, Anything we need to touch on? Because a lot of these games weren't close, and they, they weren't that exciting. Uh, Miami got a big win over the Giants. We anticipated that one. Chargers and Bengals went back and forth. Uh, well, Chargers went a big. Bengals caught them, and then the Chargers just blew them out from there. Uh, Seattle and San Fran, decent game. Russell Wilson... You know, had his best game since coming back from the injury. Detroit got their first win of the season, and that was exciting, seeing uh, how happy uh, Campbell was after the game and Jared Goff and all them. Tom Brady did what he had to do against uh, Matt Ryan, won that one 30-17. Anything else you want to Just highlight the Miami Giant game. I mean, the fact is that Miami is still in the mix for the yeah. playoffs. They have now won five in a row. They, they, they almost have, like, the Notre Dame schedule. Like, you know, the teams that they scheduled did, weren't playing well. The Baltimore win was the only big win. But... Again, everyone who hates Tua, everyone hates Brian Flores. I mean, this is—they're winning the games they have to. Um, Last he, uh, month, Tua's completion percentage was eighty percent. He was eleven for twelve on the drive, that big drive where they scored seventy-seven, where they went seventy-seven yards. But no pass goes more than ten yards. But if that's what they're going to do to win the game, they win the game. And if you look at the rest of their schedule, they have the Jets. Yeah, bye week now. Two bye weeks week. to prepare for the Jets. Then they play the Saints, who are, who are imploding as a yeah. team. Tennessee, which isn't playing well, and the New England at the end of this season. And uh, but at that point, who knows? I mean, honestly, you we have been on this. They have the easiest schedule you could imagine, but they're taking advantage of it, not losing these games. So, Ira, you mentioned before about Denver. You know, do you want to be Denver, the team that doesn't have a quarterback but has everything else? They played really good against Kansas City. Teddy Bridgewater did not look like an NFL quarterback for that entire game. And they were still hanging around. They beat Kansas City for the most part. If they had a quarterback, that game could have been totally different. Tonight, Pats, Bills. A lot of people are on the Pats here. I got to stick with the Bills at home, though. Well, I think what the Bills are a three-point favorite. 60-mile-an-hour wins. Look, at it's it's going to be fun to watch. I mean, 60-mile-an-hour wins. 
25 consistent uh, all the sustained, time. Yeah. Sustained. Yeah, that's sustained. <laughs> and the, the Bills who do, who throw every play, almost every possession they throw, how are you going to throw? Josh Allen might have the strongest arm, but he can't go a good 60-mile-an-hour wins. And so it's weird. And they say Mac Jones is a weak arm, but they're going to run the ball. But you have a team like the Bills who can't run. And this is just yeah, – The Bills can't run at all. This is going to be a, such an exciting game, and I'm, like, amazed what's happened. I think the Patriots in a game like this, the Patriots with the better defense, I go with the better defense in a game, the Patriots will win this game. I don't know, I'll take the Bills. Okay. How do the standings look? Because it's basically everyone's alive in the NFC, and the AFC only has a few teams out. Yeah, I, I, everyone's alive. I mean, right now the playoff is seven, is seven and five. Like the Bengals are the last playoff seed, and uh, but or even the the, the uh, Colts at seven and six. But you have the Raiders at six and six, Broncos at six and six, Browns at six and six, the Dolphins at six and seven. I mean, everyone's in it. Everyone, is, it's it's amazing that only the Jets are out and the Texans and Jag- Jaguars are out. Let's talk real quick because it, it was kind of the worst kept secret that Major League Baseball was going to head into a lockout, and I heard that the meeting lasted thirty minutes before the lockout happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the issue is that there's been they lock out because their, their collective bargaining has expired. We thought this was going to happen. Um, and the players are a little upset. The players are upset. We talked about this before because they are not getting called up till they're older. So they're getting called up when they're 22 and 23. So when they can start and play used to be a few years ago, if you're young, you'll platoon a little, you'll work your way in and then you'll play. You see that in pro football. That happens all the time. You draft a player, start out. Now it's like we're keeping the minor leagues. Well, then the clock doesn't tick for your six years. So then suddenly you're brought up when you're 23, 24. You don't become a free agent until you're 30. And then you're like, you're 30. You're Well, that's okay. So the point is that then you don't sign these big deals. We see some large deals, but you don't see these other players are signing like one-year contracts then, and that's why the average salary at four million, but still hasn't gone up after that, and that's why the players are more upset. They want the they want to be called up earlier. They want their service time starting earlier, and they want the time when they be afraid. And they deserve they, it. They want to be afraid when they're 20, 29. And the steroids was another issue because the older players were using steroids to stay when they're 35, 36, hitting all those home runs. Now they're not. Players are falling off the, you know, quickly. So then they're getting out of baseball earlier, and they're not getting the chance to get that one big payday. And some of them don't even get a payday, you know, at that point. So that's what the players are looking for. And then the owners, but a little different. The owners are looking for expanded postseason. They want 14 teams, which, of course, I don't want at all. They want and, uh, and, and those type of things. So there's... Issues on both sides. I really think they'll come to an agreement. There's too oh, much money on the on the table for this. They haven't had a strike since 1994, 95. And it crippled baseball. And, it, and, it, and the attendance dropped from 33,000 to 25,000. Uh, it was all. It was just they missed. They lost all of 1994, the World Series, and then they didn't start till June the next year. It was only until Sante Sotomayor, uh, 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 Justice Sotomayor, the uh, who's now Supreme Court Justice, ruled go back to the old the old agreement. And then the players, but it just nobody really wanted that, and everybody lost money. And the players are making too much money. The owners are making too much money. I just think they got to figure out coming off COVID too, where they lost a ton of money. I think they want to recoup that. One of the things I didn't think about with this, Jamison Tyone of the uh, Yankees tweeted out like, "I have no, you know, he's he just had uh, surgery." He's like, what do I do now? This is like, I'm going to the team doctors. I can't get in the building. So he's got to get all his own medical care. I never even, that didn't even cross my mind. Well, this is is interesting. They put Scherzer on the uh, committee. To, to negotiate. He's mm-hmm. making $45 million a year. Yeah. Do you think he's going to want I mean, for him, he only has three years left. He's not going to, like, sit out a year. Like, you you have – I think the point is the players are going to try to – they'll try to and, – and I look at what they're – if you look in the details, it's not that – I don't think they're – as much as the ESPN says there's this big gap, I don't really think there's that big a gap. No. It's like, should it be, like, five and a half years or six years or could it play or this or that? I think they'll figure something out. And I think where the owners, I think what you're going to see a little bit is, I think that finally some of the owners might say to the teams that don't spend money, like the Pirates that only spend like $30 million. It's like there has to be. Because what happens is they put a salary, they put a salary cap. They put that limit of like 210 where, there, where, there's, where they have to give some money back. It was supposed to be flexible. But the teams are using that as a salary cap, but there's no floor. So the players are like, well, we don't, they don't want a floor. But I think the players, now I think the players are going to push for some sort of floor because you're already effectively having a cap. No, I, I think they, they should, and I think that will pass. Uh, real quick, what happened in Formula One? One of the greatest races you could imagine. I missed it. I had, had to go watch the replay of that, which I did when I was on the plane. But uh, Lewis Hamilton beat Max Verstappen in Saudi Arabia. It was the craziest absolute race. There was a point where what happened is, is that Verstappen took the lead in the race, and then they penalized him because how he took the lead, it was illegal. But when he went to slow down, that Hamilton crashed into him. And then they finally let Hamilton pass, but then Verstappen repassed them. And then finally Hamilton was able to pass. You don't see passing a lot in NASCAR, but I mean, in Formula One, but you finally got the passing. Hamilton ended up winning it. 
And by because the essence of winning it, it's now tied. Going into the final race, 71 years of Formula One. There's never only been a tie one time going into the final. So at this point, there's only one way. If, if Hamilton finishes ninth and Verstappen 10th, and, and then Verstappen gets a, an extra bonus point, he might be able. But whoever is ahead of this race is going to win. And uh, I'm excited for this. It's this weekend in Abu Dhabi, the final race for Formula One. Star-studded, uh, star-studded fields here in golf over the weekend. Colin Morikawa took a big lead into Sunday, couldn't hold it. Congrats to Victor Hovland. A big win for Hovland. Uh, Morikawa, it, it just, it, again, a lot of these players have been playing a lot, so they're not as sharp. I think the story of the weekend was Tiger Woods' press conference. He yeah. gave his press conference. I watched it, I think, twice. Um, he was just phenomenal press conference, enthusiastic. It's his tournament down in the Bahamas. And uh, he said, look, I, I, I'm going to pick and choose what tournaments I play. I'm getting better. I don't know how. I don't know if I'm ever going to get back. He was honest about it. But he answered questions for almost an hour. So, And then people were saying, well, they weren't tough enough on him asking questions about the accident and those things. Stop. But I felt he still went out there and talked. I, I thought he talked for an hour. And these are reporters that have been criticizing him, and he answers them. And a lot of these uh, athletes now don't answer questions like that. You, even Aaron Rodgers, you see now, mm. just goes on Pat McAfee's show but doesn't have reporters ask him tough questions. We are out of time. Thank you so much to John Bacon. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk. Talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.